I'm Kate King. And I'm Mavis Vandenberg. We're colleagues and executive leaders in a global nonprofit. Leading in conversation is our passion. We're excited about the transformative power of free-flowing conversations that generate new insights and open up possibilities for change. As we've begun to experiment with conversational leadership and seen it transform how we work in our organization, we've also found that it resonates with other leaders and they want to know more. This podcast is our response to that growing interest. Together and with guests, we want to explore how conversational leadership works on a daily basis in the workplace. Hello and welcome back to Leading in Conversation. Today we're going to talk about something that was a huge aha moment for me when I first encountered it and has been critical in my understanding of how change happens since then. As you might have already picked up, I'm a big fan of Jervis Bush and Bob Marshak's Dialogic Organizational Development, DOD. Conversational leadership and dialogic organizational development are not exactly the same thing, largely because organizational development is usually done from an external consultant perspective. However, they're part of the same family of approaches and they have the same goals in mind. Bush and Marshak describe three underlying processes which are key to enabling change. We want to dig into those today, don't we, Nalis? Yeah, absolutely. I hope that each of those three can be unpacked to the point that they start making sense and how they work together. Yeah, do you want to just run through what the three are before we start digging into them? Yes. Happy to. So first is emergence and disruption. The second one is narrative change. And the third is generative images. And it's really neat how those three go together. Yeah, they really do work together well, don't they? I think a key principle behind these change principles is that language and how meaning is made and the narratives which guide people's experiences are central to organizational change. And that's why conversation is so important. Language and conversation kind of go together, don't they? Exactly. So first up, emergence and disruption. Nailis, I know you are fascinated by the application of principles of complexity science to leadership and daily life. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of emergence and the role disruption has to play in creating novelty and therefore change? Yeah. Love to. As you said, I'm always fascinated by Mm -hmm. that idea of complexity. It comes from the natural sciences and it flows deeply into what we're talking about, about social realities, because social realities are by definition complex. And emergence is a term from complexity theory that describes how patterns emerge that are not planned or Mm -hmm. are not obvious from the underlying things. So you have all of these underlying patterns, but they create something completely new that is actually unpredictable. In the social sciences, that means that this happens without planning, without anyone thinking this through ahead of time. It happens through self-organization. And a really neat example is a flock of birds. I mean, you see those beautiful patterns of birds uh, flying in all sorts of incredible shapes. But what happens is that each bird just references a few other birds around them. And together, this fascinating cloud happens. 
And people and organizations do the same. They don't think ahead of time of how to organize themselves completely. You just have a few reference points and you act on that. Mm -hmm. And the effect is often surprising and dynamic. So when you understand that, you start to think quite differently about organizing social reality because they're often self-organized. That is true for change as well, because to implement change is not something like you just build a different machine. It is you influence how those things work together, how those clouds of birds or clouds of people interact with one another. So, and that's just hugely impactful in the way you talk about change because organizations are always changing whether we recognize it or not. And as a leader, you're part of that cloud. You've got to go with the flow while finding ways to setting up conditions that help people to kind of create new reference points, to think about things differently and to get a new understanding of what's actually happening. And that's where narrative change and generative images will come in later. Exactly. But what about disruption? What does that have to do with emergence? Yeah, so complexity science has seen that change actually doesn't happen the way you often think. Systems are often incredibly stable. They don't change because people compensate. It's actually Mm. nature does the same. Stable systems are the norm. But then because there's underlying complexity, at some point you get to a tipping point, a point Mm. where suddenly change happens. And it's often quite unexpected. And that's what you can call the bifurcation point. When you're in that space of systems that are becoming kind of unstable, that's when disruption happens. Then you can flip to a completely new pattern and creating a change that you didn't expect. And again, that is emerging that you can't completely predict. Yeah. And obviously disruption is nothing new. Most leadership approaches assume disruption at some point. And a lot of it happens without our involvement or desire. Consider the last two years. I think I was reflecting on this earlier. We can probably understand the power of disruption to bring novelty and change in a whole new way after the global pandemic experience. Just thinking of, for example, the speed at which vaccines developed and and the way the scientific community made changes to their processes so quickly to work together around the globe to bring these vaccines into being. Also, the shift to remote working, which we could never have imagined before, really at this scale but you know half the people down this side of my street we're all working at home now we can in the summer we can hear our zoom conversations through the open windows and zoom itself the explosion of zoom even the owners of zoom could not have planned or dreamt that their product would become a household name or even a verb to zoom across the entire world no strategic planner could have planned that expansion of zoom which the disruption of the pandemic caused. It's incredible when you think about what's happened because of the pandemic. Absolutely. Great, great example of emergence through disruption. Yes. And then the question is, of course, to what extent can you induce that? How do Mm -hmm. you create change? Because leaders role is to help organizations change to deal with new realities and the reality is that most systems as i said earlier resist change so it's not as easy as you think just to throw a a wrench in the gearbox is not a way to create helpful uh, no no it's an art in a way to deal with that change with that complexity and leverage what happens towards positive new emerging patterns. As a leader, you look for opportunities to work with the disruptions that are already happening, then help people to cope with that and to yeah, create a way to adapt 
together. And it really is about doing that together. And that helps by giving new points of view, by new insights, by creating deep discussion. We talked in our last one about diversity because that's what it takes. It's all those viewpoints to help the whole system to to deal with that disruption in a helpful way. Yeah, I think we probably need to add a caveat here that, you know, we're not promoting inflicting disruption on people, on organizations, on staff. It's not pleasant, although sometimes disruption can be very creative. But we have a duty of care as leaders not to inflict pain and suffering on our staff, if at all possible. So what we're talking about, like you said, is working with disruption as it occurs as many as of us have done in the last two years, to engage the potential of those, those unplanned disruptions. Um, one example for us is that it has meant in some of our organizational units, the growth of national leadership as expats have had to return to their passport countries. And that's, you know, serendipitous change uh, as we've been working towards that anyway, but it was accelerated in some places by the disruption of the pandemic. But we're also talking about finding gentle ways to seed change and see what happens when that disruption occurs. Let me say something here, because I think it's mm -hmm. important to understand that in some ways, the disruptions will happen. As you said, we, we work with it. Mm -hmm. But another part of it, and I think that's also what Bush and Marshall talk about, is that you actually make the disruption that's happening visible because a lot of people don't realize that disruption is actually happening and then to confront a group with that and say hey have you seen what's actually happening you suddenly then create a new dynamic that allows people to come to grips with that and you introduce disruption that you didn't artificially create but that was there anyway and sometimes we need to reframe disruption or crises for ourselves so that we see them in a positive light not a negative light what was it you were saying last episode about survival or opportunity mindset yes, yes. Um, the opportunity mindset versus survival and yes that gets us actually into the second point we wanted to talk about because that's a very natural bridge into narrative because this is about narratives isn't it really good at these segues aren't we <laughs> Yeah, so narrative change. What are narratives? Narratives are the stories we tell ourselves to make sense about the world, to make sense of the world, to make sense of the organization we work in, about our role in the organization, what a stakeholder does, a customer, etc. So that's all built up of stories that are told to each other and to ourselves. Narratives are very powerful in mm. enabling us to think about the reality in ways that make sense to us. It's that sense-making part. But they also can restrict us because it can stop us looking at things from a different way because that narrative then becomes like the glasses through which you see the world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do you have any examples of that? Yeah, so... One example I, I mentioned at the beginning of the pandemic was that I noticed that I was walking into the bank with a mask on and I just had to laugh at myself. It's like you would have been arrested as a potential bank robber if you had walked into a bank <laughs> with a mask on just a year before. Yes. Now, I would have been thrown out of the bank if I didn't have hadn't. a mask. Yes, we all do it. Yes, I've been into a bank wearing a mask and never thought about that before. But the narrative changed there. It's okay to wear masks in banks now. If you dig a little bit deeper, 
the narrative is the risk of getting COVID is much higher than the risk of you being a robber. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Definitely. It yeah. is that thinking about, about risk that, that changed. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And for these sort of changes to occur, of course, we, we talked, I think, in the first episode about how this philosophical background to conversational leadership is this social constructionism. So narratives have to be socially agreed upon for them to work. And the shift really only works if everyone's agreeing that together. I mean, if you had just suddenly decided that you could walk into a bank wearing a mask because you were afraid of catching something, but no one else was working off that same narrative, you would have been arrested. Um, so there's this element of social agreement around the narratives, but we don't really discuss it ever. They are agreements that come into being. They gradually emerge, I guess, unless you create them deliberately. So let's go a little bit deeper than a very superficial thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A really important example in society at large is how we look at the role of the Western world for example. So we used to see ourselves as the, the good guys who came to civilize the rest of the world. Now, in hindsight, we're looking at that and we said, actually, we were conquerors. We were trying to exploit others. That narrative was deeply seeded. Everyone believed it. Everyone was like, well, for them to be civilized, they've got to go through the stage and it's our job to do that. Yeah, it excused so many crimes against humanity that were done that we look at now and think how could that have been socially acceptable because we had a narrative and that's yeah. the glasses through which we saw everything happening that happens in organizations the same so what is the story behind the organization what are we telling ourselves about why we exist and that's incredibly powerful and that can be a, a leverage for incredible good and an excuse for incredible crimes yes you're right so can you explain a bit more about how narratives work in organizations? Yeah, I think they're often visible in things like branding and identity. So it's the story that an organization tells itself about, as I said, why they exist. It can actually be seen in what you celebrate. Uh, yeah. What's being rewarded in the organization? What are people called out for as examples for others? What do we feature in our internal newsletters? Exactly. That's very interesting. And we are working in an organization that does language work. So an example for us is around multilingualism. So we assumed that our work was with people groups that spoke just one language and we came and helped them develop their language. We call that the hard language. Now we realize more and more there's been disruption and our realization of the narrative has become unsettled that actually most people don't speak one language anymore. Most people in the world speak multiple languages. Most exactly. people are multilingual because we are so much more connected these days, apart from obviously a very few remote places where there are people living and just speaking one language to each other. But even then, probably someone from that community connects externally and speaks a trade language or something. But there are obviously those places. But yeah, for most people, multilingualism is their reality now. So we had to shift, didn't we, in our organization? Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yes. So we started talking about that. We started to confront that reality because it's uncomfortable because if your whole organization was set up to work with those single languages, people speaking a single language, 
you have to change your methods of work completely. So we had to talk about this. Is this true? How does this work? Do people have a hard language as such? And we created discussions around that, helping people to get used to the idea, did some videos about it, testimonies, etc. And then people started to embrace that very gradually. They did an excellent job. I remember um, watching videos of our colleagues explaining our multilingual colleagues explaining what it meant to them, how they changed from one language to another in a different setting, things like that. It was, it was great. I learned a lot. And then you start to adapt the way you work. Suddenly you do your efforts in a language community very differently because you realize that they need different kind of support because the assumption that they only speak that one language isn't true. So they need different publications, education systems look differently, etc. So what does it actually take to change a narrative? You've mentioned a few things there that we did videos and I guess conversation. Yeah, well, that was going to be the answer. Conversational <laughs> leadership, leading in conversation. Yes, I think part of it is, and we touched on that, is providing new information mm. uh, so that people can see a different reality. So you need to tell different stories like that video you talked about, start to use different language, etc. We started putting it in our core statements, in our values. But I don't think that that is actually how the change itself happened. No. That was just a reflection of a change that had already happened. You're right, actually. We did that after the fact almost, didn't we? Catching up with the reality that now we want to embed this narrative change into our core statements, our values, etc. But that wasn't what we led with because that doesn't often cause change, just changing yeah. the statements. Yeah. So it's introducing it at events, at conversations, providing that information, helping people wrestle with it and giving it time because this is not a top-down decision mm -hmm. that you suddenly start doing that because it's beliefs that need to change. Yes, absolutely. So, but that brings also another way of bringing about change. And I think we're just starting to see the power of that is the idea of generative images, which, which is then the third, those three, yes. the three this, things you wanted to talk about. Yeah, this is my favorite, as you know, in my current area of research. I'll probably want to talk about this at greater length in future episodes. <laughs> I, you know, I've been I was doing some more reading, digging around before this podcast recording, and there's not very much out there written about it. It really, I think a lot of the credit for this concept belongs to Jervis Bush. I've not really seen it referred to in this way outside of dialogic organizational development. I may be wrong. I may not be looking in the right places. But yeah, it's an exciting new way, I think, of using language to connect with what motivates people. It's, it's different to a vision statement, I think. Well, definitely. And so the idea of generative images, of course, has two words in it, generative and image. I love that word generative. So generative is the idea of generation, of creation. Mm -hmm. It is about something that becomes fruitful. So the idea <laughs> of something that's generative is really exciting because it then produces new ideas. It triggers new concepts. It pushes people to think in new ways. I love that about the idea of generative images. Mm. 
So a generative image is a combination of words or pictures or other symbolic media. It's in my experience, it's you know, it's not images, it's sort of word pictures or a couple of words which conjure up an image that provides new ways of thinking about reality, that that's society in general or your organization or your business. And it can be introduced deliberately or sometimes it just emerges. And I think the really powerful thing about generative images is that they allow people to see something in a new light and to think differently about it. It opens up the way for new insights, decisions and actions, and, you know, enables us to, as you said, go beyond our existing thinking about something and present these new possibilities. I think some of the key characteristics of generative images are that they're compelling and attractive and they just kind of draw you even though you're not quite sure why. They make you want to act differently or a good generative image will make you want to act differently. But it's also something that's quite hard to define or explain. I'll explain that in a minute or maybe you can actually. The ambiguity around a good generative image increases the generative possibilities it has. And maybe you want to talk a little bit about sustainable development, Alice. Yes. But first, I find that that very undefinedness is what makes it powerful. And that has to do with, the, again, what we talked about in complexity. It's not all thought out ahead of time. It mm-hmm. creates possibilities. It yeah. is, in that sense, embraces the idea of unpredictable outcomes and it enables people to be creative, to, to come up with their own ideas of how to attain it. Yeah, the example you mentioned about sustainable development is actually often cited as a good generative image because it has that internal tension. So mm-hmm. in the past, being sustainable and doing development were at odds with each other. They were two things that couldn't be combined. Nobody had even thought of combining them. No. Yet. And the idea is here that we want to be sustainable and we want to develop and we want it both. And so then the term was coined sustainable development. And certainly that created a completely new way of looking at the world and it opened up a world of new possibilities. That is incredibly helpful and it's triggered new science. It has triggered a new way of looking at what development actually is. It has created new definitions of sustainability. Mm-hmm. And, and yet it's a term that we all just take for granted today. Without knowing exactly what it means. Yeah, well, exactly. You can't define it and it's inspirational. And it's, yeah, Another example I was thinking of earlier is actually of an image that had this generative power to change. And I'm sure as soon as I mention it, everyone will be able to picture it. That powerful photo of a young girl in a village in Vietnam running down the road after a napalm attack on her village. I think we can probably, yeah, all immediately conjure that up. That single image was so powerful that it changed the narrative of the Vietnam War by communicating the human impact of what was happening. And and some say it led to the end of the war, ultimately. So that's an example of an image that has that generative power, a visual image. Mm. Yeah, exactly. We're still experimenting with this in our own organization. UK started working on that when you were working with our staff community. And so you coined, or together we coined, it was actually coined in two places at the same time, I think, the term community of greats. That I think is is a good example of a generative image as well. It's taken off. So can you explain a bit more about that? Sure, yes. And thank you for reminding me that it did emerge in two places at once, didn't it? It was very strange. And then we did, we both discovered we'd been working with this concept. So 
it was not an intentional generative image. I was doing my master's studies at the time and I only realized after it had been suggested, hey, this is a generative image. And it had already begun to grow legs and walk by then. So we were focusing on growing our sense of being a community rather than just a bunch of individual colleagues scattered around the world. And I think it was during a planning session, someone suggested that we needed another word to describe the kind of community we wanted to be. And the concept of grace emerged. We want to be a community of grace, community that is kind, caring, supportive, you know, despite the intensity and challenges of our work that we face together. And really, it just, yeah, it just took off. We did little more than just launch the term, provide a few materials, discussion things around it. And it just took off. People ran with it. They did their own things. They made it mean something for their team, their unit. We actually did very little. And yet, I think, I don't know, would you go as far to say it has changed our staff community? I think it has. Yeah. I like this example. It shows, again, that generative images can come in different kinds. So the sustainable development one is one that has a built-in polarity. Yeah. This one doesn't necessarily. Well, unless you think of communities as being not always the easiest place to find unity and grace. (laughs) But yes, it's less obvious than sustainable development. I think one way of arriving at a good generative image is thinking through some of the polarities that you're wrestling with and looking at what are the things we want to hold intention but intentionally embrace. And is there a way to bring those concepts together in a novel way? I think some of that did happen with the community of Grey's idea was individualism versus togetherness. It was the idea of grace but still doing the right thing. And so there's, I think, some of the ideas behind it, which makes it so powerful. But again, you can't predict exactly what will work and what won't. But to use generative images as a leverage for change, I think is a hugely helpful tool for any leader. It's about creating a rallying point for people. It's recognizing that we have motivations and giving people a sense of purpose. I think often our organizational visions are so big and lofty and out there that they don't really speak to us in quite the same way as maybe a purpose like that. We want to be a community of grace or sustainable development. Or another one from um, a book we both read recently was this building supplies company that talked about stress-free customer service they were having a lot of problems with their getting the right things to the right place and the right people at the right time and they came up with this generative image of stress-free customer service and that was a purpose that sort of everyone could go yeah we want to do this it gave them a sort of rallying point together i think that is a key part of it it's creating a way to capture a shared passion that people can say yeah that's what we want We don't know how yet, but that's what we want. Yes. I think the fact that it has to be a little bit unobtainable in a sense, but but not totally because visions or impact statements are sometimes so far out there. You can kind of roll your eyes and say, well, that's really nice. And yes, that is what we're looking for. But actually a purpose like stress-free customer service is a lot more attainable. Yes. And the the idea behind this is that people can interpret this and start to make it their own, build on it, and then it all steers everyone in the same direction because it's something that is a shared inspiration. So with the example in our organization, we put that term out there and people just did different things with it and used it in different ways, but we were all going in the same direction of trying to increase our sense of being a community that was caring and supportive. 
Yes, and that's where culture change emerges without being able to control it. That's exactly what you're hoping for. Mm. So it brings us back to those three ideas then coming together. Disruption, narrative, and generative images all sort of working in the same direction and building on that together. So a generative image can both change the narrative in an organization, but it can also act as a kind of disruptor. Yes. Challenge us to reconsider our sort of socially constructed understanding or narrative about who we are and what we do. And, and vice versa, it can make sense of the disruption that people are already seeing. And it then yeah. rallies around a new way of coping with that disruption that has been just something to stress over into something that actually people yeah. know now how to embrace and run with. I really like that. I hadn't thought of that before. Yes, actually, the right generative image can give you a way to cope with the disruption and the uncertainty. Going back to our VUCA world, our volatile, uncertain what is it? Complex and ambiguous. <laughs> well, yes, those generative images can give us something to focus on. And having tied those three things together, I think we're at the end of our time. So, I think we are. I hope yeah. this inspires people to experiment, to work with change, and realizing that nurturing change is an art. It's not a science. It's an ongoing conversation. Again, we'd love to hear if any of this resonates with you. We'd love to hear your stories. Do you have any examples of how disruption, narrative change, generative images, all three together, maybe, have contributed to change in your lives, your work? Feel free to drop a line to us personally or a comment at the website at leadershipinconversation.net. Yes, we are preparing for an event in two weeks, actually, where we'll be experimenting with a very conversational process. So this means we will be off air for the rest of this month, but hopefully we can report back from that event afterwards and share what we did and how it went. And we're also lining up a couple of interviews with others. So do check back for more episodes in May. Looking forward to sharing the stories of how disruption and conversation happened there. So that's it for now. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.